All right, tonight we are going to talk about Moses. And uh, so there's notes in the front, notes in the back if you need some notes. When I use the phrase founding fathers, most of you probably picture a scene like the one uh, up on the screen. You picture some of the guys in that picture. Maybe you think about George Washington, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin. You think about the men who shaped our country, who shaped our constitution, who were instrumental in the, the earliest days of our nation. And as a country, we have looked back on men like that, the founding fathers, and we've sort of uh, immortalized them in a sense. Uh, we build monuments to them, or we put them on our dollar bills, or we name streets or towns or or universities after these men to remember them and to remember their contribution. And so maybe some of you have visited uh, Washington, D.C. You've been to the Washington Monument. Anybody been to the Washington Monument? I haven't been to D.C., but some of you guys have seen that. Maybe you've been to the Jefferson Memorial. Uh, again, just another uh, monument, memorial place named after one of the founding fathers to remember them and to think about the great contribution that they've made. As I thought about monuments and some of the founding fathers, my mind went to Mount Rushmore. I don't know how many of you guys have visited Mount Rushmore. Hands? Quite a few of you, more than I expected. Um, it's a place I'd like to visit. It's a, a neat place. And as I, as I looked up some information about Mount Rushmore and read about the, uh, the beginnings of this program to carve these faces in the rock and the dates involved and when they did it and why they did it and the people involved is really an interesting story. Four U.S. presidents carved into the granite, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, really interesting that Theodore Roosevelt was not that far removed from office when they carved his name up there. And we think about all these guys as being, you know, way, way back. But when they actually started uh, work on the project, he had not been out of office too long. And uh, it would sort of be like building a monument like that today and throwing someone like uh, George W. Bush or Barack Obama and somebody that recent. It was sort of a, a real honor to put someone who was still living and uh, still alive to put them up there. So we've got Mount Rushmore, and Mount Rushmore has kind of taken on a, a life of its own as a term. And sometimes you hear people debate, if you were going to add someone to Mount Rushmore, who would you add? Or maybe it gets taken out of the political arena and it gets moved into, say, the sports world. And maybe they say, who, who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of NFL quarterbacks? And they want you to pick their top four. They say, who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of the greatest whatever? And we have debates and discussions about who we would put up there. And if I asked you tonight, not if, I am going to ask you tonight. I want you to just take 30 seconds. And I want you to get your pen out. And I want you to write down your Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. Do not put God, because you don't get to make a graven image. That's one of the commandments. We learned that Sunday. So God doesn't get to be up there. We're not carving God. But just real quick, off the top of your head, four names that you might put down on your Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. People that you would put up there. The best of the best. The, the greatest heroes. Give you just a second to think about that. I'm not going to ask you to, to share that, obviously. There's too many of us here to do that. But I bet a lot of you put down Noah. I bet a lot of you put down Abraham. 
I bet a lot of you put down Moses, who we're going to talk about tonight, and I bet a lot of you put down David. Those were sort of the first four that came to mind, and others, maybe you put down Daniel, maybe you put down Isaiah, um, but I think any list, okay, however it sorted out in the end, the four that you ended up with, if you were going to do the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, I think we would all agree Moses has to be up there. Moses belongs in that group. When you look back at the Old Testament and you think about who had the biggest footprint on the people of God, who had the biggest and the longest lasting impact on the people of God, whose story dominates the pages of Scripture more than any other, Moses certainly has to be on that list. And so we'll start with a quote taken from A.W. Pink. We've talked about A.W. Pink a lot on Sunday mornings. We've pulled some quotes from his commentary as we've worked through the book of Exodus. But here's a thought from A.W. Pink about Moses. He says, From Adam to Christ, there is none greater than Moses. He is one of the few characters of Scripture whose course is sketched from his infancy to his death. All the way. The fierce light of criticism has been turned upon him for generations but he is still the most commanding figure of the ancient world. In character, in faith, in the unique position assigned him as the mediator of the old covenant, and in achievements, he stands first among the heroes of the Old Testament. All of God's early dealings with Israel were transacted through Moses. He was a prophet, priest, and king in one person, Now, A.W. Pink knows that the Bible doesn't refer to him as a king, but what he's saying is he functioned in all of those roles for the people. He was everything for them. He was prophet, priest, and king at different times. So united all the great and important functions which later were distributed among a plurality of persons. The history of such a one is worthy of the strictest attention, and his remarkable life deserves the closest study That's from A.W. Pink in Gleanings in Exodus. So that's our focus tonight, is the life of Moses. What do we learn from that? How do we see him as a hero? And how do we see him as a man who fell short of God's glory and was in need of being saved by the true hero, Jesus Christ? So we'll start with context, Old Testament context. This is the timeline we've put up each week. It goes all the way from creation Until the people return from exile. That is the storyline of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament, every book, every character, every everything fits in that timeline somewhere. And Moses falls into the the two categories of leading the exodus and then giving the people the law, delivering the law to God's people. And Moses stands unique in that most of the heroes that we're going to talk about and most of the heroes that we would put up on that timeline fall in one of those major epics. And Moses spans two of them. Two very, very significant stories. Moses' life overlaps those, and he's a crucial player in that. The context for his life you can read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 22. And all that is is just the story of how the people of Israel, how the sons of Jacob ended up moving to Egypt because of the famine. Joseph had been sent ahead of them by the wickedness of his brothers and the sovereign plan of God. Both of those things worked together so that Joseph was there to prepare a place where they could live and have food to eat. All of that's summarized in Exodus chapter 1 and explains how the people got to Egypt. 
And then we jump in with Moses' life story. And I'm going to give you several words here. We're not going to look up scriptures at this point. We're going to try to move a little bit quickly tonight through some of this because we've been talking about some of these things on Sunday morning. So the sources you use for Moses' life would be uh, the book of Exodus and what follows in the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can also find some interesting details in Acts chapter 7. That's when Stephen stands up and gives a speech right before he's martyred. He marches through the history of Israel, and he has a lot to say about Moses. You also find Moses mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. So those are our sources. First stage in his life is his birth. His birth. And you know the story. His birth was of significance. Pharaoh had ordered that all the male babies be thrown into the Nile. His parents, we learn their names later in the story. We don't learn them in chapter 1. You learn them in chapter 6, verse 20. His parents were Amram and Jochebed. They were of the tribe of Levi. They didn't want to throw their baby into the river. And so they hid him for a time. And when they could no longer hide him, they put him in this basket, in this literally an ark, and floated him down the river. In a sense, you could say they did what Pharaoh said to do, throw the baby into the Nile. They put him in the Nile. He floats down the river, and he ends up being taken in, you remember, by Pharaoh's daughter. And his name is Moses, which means he was drawn out because Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the water. So that's his birth. You can read about that in the passages listed. The next stage we'll just call Egypt. This is a long stage. It's 40 years of his life. It's about a third of Moses' life. And really, there's not much detail in the Bible given about this stage. Hollywood, when they make a movie about the Exodus or they make a movie about Moses, really loves to speculate on this stage. And they like to speculate about what was it like for Moses growing up with Pharaoh's daughter? What was it like for Moses being part of the royal family? What was it like for Moses to uh, possibly, sometimes there's speculation, that he was actually in line for the throne? Hollywood likes to speculate about what was the the power struggle between the man who eventually became Pharaoh and Moses as sort of this outsider. Hollywood speculates about, did he know he was adopted? Did he know he was Hebrew? When did he learn he was Hebrew? All of these things Hollywood kicks around and and makes up different things to try to fill in the storyline. Here's what we know. The Bible's very restrained. At some point, Moses learns that he is a Hebrew. some point. He learns his ethnicity. And at some point, the Bible says he makes a conscious decision to identify with his people, God's people, the Hebrews, rather than hang on to his status in Egypt. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. It doesn't explain heart motivation. It just says at some point he made that decision and he gave up his position in Egypt. And think about the things that he gave up leaving the royal family. He gave up power. He gave up position and prestige. He gave up money. He gave up security in life. Just the idea that I wouldn't have to worry about anything ever. All my needs will be met over and above and then some. And he gave all of that up to identify with his people, to identify with God's people. So that's Egypt. Next stage, Midian. Midian. We're going to come back and talk about Moses murdering an Egyptian in a few minutes. On the heels of that, he has to leave. 
and he runs away to Midian. He takes a wife. He becomes a shepherd. He lives there for 40 years. So he's about 40 years old when he runs away. He lives in Midian until he's about 80. So he spends most of his adult life living as a shepherd in Midian. Just think about this because we're going to come back to this idea later. First 40 years of his life, he probably identifies as an Egyptian. Next 40 years of his life, he's living in a foreign land amongst Midianites. When they first see Moses in Midian, he looks like an Egyptian because they say an Egyptian saved us. He looks Egyptian. Over 40 years, he probably begins to look like the Midianites. He probably takes on their culture and their customs and their clothing and their hairstyles and all of that stuff. So he's there for 40 years. We have the story of the burning bush. God appears to him, sends him back to Egypt. We're going to come back and talk about how Moses argues with God and that that was not a good thing. And then there's this strange story. We're going to try our best to make sense of it where Moses has finally agreed to do what God wants him to do. He's 80 years old. He's packed up his family, as it were. He's headed back to Egypt to do what God sent him to do. And all of a sudden, when you're reading the story, it says God showed up to kill Moses. And his wife stepped in and circumcised the kid and touched the blood to Moses, and God didn't kill him. We'll come back and try to make sense of that later on. Uh, I talked to Corey today, and Corey said, do you think I should tell that story when I teach in the youth? Hunter is sick, and so Corey's teaching. He said, should I tell that story in the youth? He said, I think Hunter was going to leave it out because by the time you explained it, I think you would have lost all the kids. And this was my advice to Corey. I said, this is what you do. You read the story. We'll read it in a minute. Read the story. God's going to kill him, the circumcision, all the stuff. Then look up at the youth and say, I need a volunteer. So, if any of your teenagers come home terrified, then there you go. So, that's Midian, okay? Next stage, we're going to say, is the Hebrew stage. This is the stage of life, the last 40 years of his life, where he identifies as a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian, living with Egyptians. He's not a Midianite, living amongst the Midianites, but he's a Hebrew. Gone to rescue the Hebrews and to bring them into the promised land. This is most of the book of Exodus This is Leviticus, this is Numbers, this is Deuteronomy. This is everything from Moses showing up in Exodus 5 and telling Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, all through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea and the manna and the water from the rock and sending the spies in and the rebellion and the people don't want to go in and an entire generation dying in the wilderness and his brother dying and his sister dying. And then we come finally to the last stage of Moses' life, which is his death. So that's the fifth stage. And he's got an interesting death. We talked about Elijah last week and how he didn't die, but he rode this flaming chariot to heaven in a tornado and how cool that was. And Moses, uh, he didn't go out like Elijah, but he went out uh, in a unique way. He basically went off with the Lord and the Lord buried him. And it was just him and the Lord at the end. And you sort of wonder what that was like. And there's questions we have. And some of those questions aren't answered. But he went off and the Lord buried him. He was 120 years old. So that's the final stage, his death. Okay. Now let's dig into the text and let's talk about some negatives and positives. And let me just remind you the reason we do this each week. Okay. 
Paul tells the church in Corinth that the things in the Old Testament were written down for your example that you would learn not to make the mistakes that the people made. And specifically when Paul says that, he's talking about Moses and the Exodus and all of those events. And he says, these things have been written down so that you don't make the same idolatrous decisions that they made. So we want to look at these heroes and say, what are the things that we need to avoid? Things in their life where they went off the tracks that we need to be careful of. And in Moses' life, there are plenty of things to avoid. Here's the negative, as best I can summarize it in one sentence. Moses was guilty of murder, arguing with God, reluctantly accepting the covenant of circumcision, whining about Israel, blatantly disobeying the Lord, and refusing to admit his mistakes. So I'm going to let you fill all those blanks in, and then I want you to take your Bible out, and we're going to flip around a little bit and look at some of these examples. So let's start in Exodus 2. I told you we'd come back to this. If you've ever seen a screen presentation of the Exodus, my guess is that when it comes to the part where Moses murders the Egyptian, they portrayed it as a justice issue. Meaning, here's Moses out sort of minding his own business and he looks over and here's this Egyptian beating the snot out of a Hebrew and he just sort of goes off in a holy, righteous rage and kills the guy and it wasn't like this premeditated thing, it was just sort of like a crime of passion and they portray it often in film or TV as if it was this good thing that he did, that he should have done it And if you read the text, I'm not convinced that it reads that way exactly. Look at Exodus 2.11. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. He looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Verse 12, I think, is key. He looked this way and that. Meaning, he didn't just see it. And just rage off on the guy and it was holy, righteous indignation and he was standing up for justice. But he saw it and he looked around to say, can I get away with this? Can I take matters into my own hands and is anybody going to see this? He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Meaning, he didn't do it to make an example and to stand up for what was right and to tell the whole nation, this is wrong and I'm taking a stand and we're not doing this anymore. But he looks around to see if he can get away with it and he kills the guy and he buries him in the sand and he doesn't want anyone else to know about it. I agree with the Bible scholars who say this was premeditated murder. It may not have been premeditated very long, but it was premeditated. It was intentional. It was thought through. He had a plan for making sure no one was watching. He had a plan, lousy as it was, so that no one would find out about it. You know that people found out about it quickly. The Hebrews knew about it. The Egyptians knew about it. But I think what we have described here is murder, not a justice issue. Secondly, look over at Exodus 3 and 4. He argues with God. And I don't think it's a result of Moses just being humble. We're going to look at the verse later where it says that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Okay, I know that verse. I know he was a humble guy, and I know there's other examples of that. 
But I think what you see in Exodus 3 and 4, where he keeps objecting over and over and over again, is not just Moses being humble, but it's Moses just saying to God, I don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. And the reason I say that, he objects five times, and I just want you to look at the very last objection. Some of the first ones sound pretty good, and he says, oh, I'm not very good at this, or oh, they may not listen to me. But the last objection just kind of cuts to the chase. After God's answered all of his objections, he's given them these miracles to perform. He's assured him over and over and over again. Exodus 4.13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I just don't want to do it. Maybe he thought, I'm past my prime, I'm 80 years old, I'm ready to retire. Maybe he thought, I don't even feel like a Hebrew anymore, I feel like a Midianite. I've lived here for 40 years. That's none of my business anymore. The text does tell us in in different places in the Bible that when Moses killed that Egyptian, one of the things he thought is that the Hebrews would look at it and see that God was going to save them. So maybe he just felt like a failure and he thought, I tried that once before and it didn't work. I don't know the exact motivation. Probably it was a mix of all those things and more. But at the end of all that God assures him of and promises him and gives him these miracles, he just looks at God and he says, I just want you to send somebody else. This is not a guy just being humble before God. This is a guy who is arguing with God. Now comes the interesting story. Look at Exodus 4, starting in 24. He finally says he's going to go. He tells Jethro, I'm leaving. He takes off. And then we read this, Exodus 4, 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And what that verse means is, that phrase is, God let Moses alone. Because of what Zipporah did, God let him alone. He sought to put him to death. Verse 25, then Zipporah steps in. Verse 26, so he let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I'll be honest with you. That's one of the weirdest stories in the whole Bible. There's not nearly enough detail to try to really pin down exactly what's going on. It kind of reminds me, you remember in in Corinthians where Paul is talking about the resurrection and all of a sudden he just pops off about baptism for the dead and then he just goes right back into talking about the resurrection again and you just want to say, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Could you explain that a little bit more? What you're talking about or what's going on there? And we can do our best to make some guesses but at the end of the day we look at it and say, yeah, that, that's kind of strange. And this is one of those stories. If you get Bible commentaries out, I think I've got 10 or 12 Bible commentaries on Exodus in my office. My guess is if you read 10 or 12 different Bible commentaries, you'd read 10 or 11 different explanations for what was going on. What exactly is happening here in this story? And I'm just going to give you my best guess at it. I think there was a reluctance on Moses' part to accept the covenant of circumcision. Right? Circumcision's been around for a long time at this point. It goes all the way back to Abraham. And Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes. 
And one of those was Levi. And I think the tribe of Levi practiced circumcision just like the rest of the Hebrews. And I think Moses was circumcised. Because I think that's when Pharaoh's daughter bends over in the Nile and she picks this baby up and she looks at him. The first thing she says is, it's a Hebrew baby. I don't know about you, but I've been to the hospital and looked at babies. You can't tell a newborn baby from anything. I mean, what in the world? They all, in that part of the world, they're dark-skinned folks. The reason she could tell is he was circumcised. So he's circumcised. He grows up Egyptian. That's not something that was a big deal to the Egyptians. Then he lives in Midian, and that's not something that's a big deal to the Midianites. And God finally says to Moses, he pins him down, he backs him to a corner, he says, you are going to be the guy, you are going to go back, you are going to rescue the people. And my guess is that somewhere in there, we don't have a verse that tells us this, but somewhere in there God says, look, you and your family, you got to take care of this circumcision thing. If you're going to rescue the Hebrew people, you got to be Hebrew. You can't hold out on this covenant that I've given to my people on this sign that I've given to my people. And for whatever reason, he doesn't do it with his kids. And it's such a serious issue to the Lord that he shows up at this lodging place on the way as Moses is going back to Egypt. And the Lord is there for one purpose, and that's to put Moses to death. And his wife steps in. She circumcises the son. All sorts of explanations about what does she exactly mean by this phrase in English. It says a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. But I think the bottom line is that there was some reluctance on Moses' part to practice this, this covenant sign that God had given to his people. So again, another, another mark in the negative column. Whining about Israel. Take your Bible and look at Exodus 17. We talked about this a few weeks back, so we won't, we won't spend too much time here. Exodus 17, verse 4, says, Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You see a similar idea if you flip over to Numbers 11, verse 10. Numbers eleven ten. It says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Verse 11, Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Meaning, why have you given me a raw deal? So I think there's a couple of times where Moses, he's human, he's frustrated, these people are a bunch of knuckleheads, he just sort of gets to the end of his rope and he comes to God and he just vents a little bit. And on a human level, we can understand that because you've experienced things like that. Maybe at home with your kids or maybe at home uh, or at work with a coworker or whatever where you just sort of get to your end of your rope and you say, I don't know what else to do in this situation. And you just sort of gripe at God a little bit. So we can relate to that, but the fact that you and I can relate to it doesn't mean that it's okay for Moses to do it. To say to the Lord, what do you want me to do with these people? They're going to kill me. Well, no, they're not. They're not going to kill you. Well, these people, why have you dealt ill with me in, in hooking me up with these people? Well, God hadn't dealt, dealt ill with Moses. And I think at times, not often, but at times, he got a little bit whiny. Now let's get to the serious issue. Blatantly disobeying the Lord. Numbers chapter 20. 
Let's just read it. It's not long. Numbers 20. Verse 2, there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here, both we and our cattle. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, just like he had done in a previous situation, where God told him to take the staff and hit the rock. He didn't tell him to do that this time. He said, speak to the rock, tell the rock. And he lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, though he showed himself holy. Look. I know your tendency is probably a lot like mine, is to look at that story and to say, that seems like a slight overreaction. To ban him from the promised land for this one act of disobedience. Here's the thing. When God revealed himself to people in special ways, he held those people to a higher standard. That's why Nadab and Abihu who had spent time with the Lord face to face on Mount Sinai, the sons of Aaron, when they came down after seeing God face to face and intentionally and deliberately offered a different type of incense. That's all they did wrong. They offered a different type of incense. God burst out and killed them on the spot. Why didn't he burst out and kill all the people when they worshiped the golden calf? Well, he's holding Nadab and Abihu to a higher standard because of the revelation that's been given to them. And I think that's what God is doing to Moses. And quite frankly, it's probably God's grace that he didn't burst out and kill him on the spot when he starts hitting the rock with his staff. And instead, he says, I'm not going to burst out and kill you, but you are not going into the promised land. Two reasons. You did not believe me, and you did not uphold me as holy in the sight of the people. And because of that transgression, you don't get to get in. So he blatantly disobeys the Lord, and there's a consequence. And to make it worse, this really just intensifies what we just read. He refused to admit his mistake. And I want you to see what I'm talking about. In your notes, it says Deuteronomy 5, but look at Deuteronomy 3. That's my my typo. Deuteronomy 3. This is after 
all the people have died. Aaron's died, Miriam's died, everyone's dead. They're ready to go in. The new generation has been raised up. And look at Deuteronomy 3, verse 23. Moses says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works as mighty, uh, such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, remember it already said he's pleading. Now he says, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me. Why? He says, because of you. Is that what God told him? Back in Numbers 20, did God say, look, Moses, because these people are so wicked and stubborn and rebellious, you don't get to go in. That's not the reason. God said, Moses, you didn't believe me and you didn't uphold me as holy. And when Moses looks back on it, he says, well, the Lord was angry with me because of you. This is like Adam and Eve, like it's really your fault. It's really the devil's fault. It's really your fault that I did that. He would not listen to me, and the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to Pisgah. Look every direction. I'm going to show you the land, but you will not go over the Jordan. Get Joshua ready, verse 28. He's going to take you over. And you see the same thing in the very next chapter. Look at Deuteronomy 4. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And I know that we think of Moses as this great guy, but I think there's a real issue in his life right here where he's looking back on Numbers 20 where he didn't believe and he didn't uphold God as holy. And rather than just look back on it and say, I made a mistake, I blatantly disobeyed the Lord. I did not do what he said to do, and there's a consequence. Rather than own up to that, he looked back on that moment, kind of like you and I would tend to do, and he said, that really wasn't my fault. That was your fault. You backed me into a corner. You complained for water over and over and over again. You were threatening to to rebel against my leadership or to raise up another leader or to whatever, and it just seems like to the end, he never, he never wants to admit his mistake in that moment. So there's the negative. Here's the positive, and there is positive. Moses lived a life that was largely marked by obedience, worship, humility, courage, and faith. The things that we just talked about as negatives were sort of like snapshots from moments in his life. And some of those snapshots are really bad. You've got murder. You've got arguing with the Lord. You've got blatant rebellion and refusal to admit that. I mean, there's some bad moments. But the large picture, the large pattern, the movie reel of his life is really one of obedience, worship, humility, courage, and faith. We're not going to look up all of these. I just want you to see a couple of them. Look at Exodus 5.1. Exodus 5.1. I just don't want you to miss. Sometimes we're so familiar with the story, we forget what's happening. Exodus 5.1. 
Moses is an Egyptian exile going on 40 years. He's been a shepherd for four decades in the wilderness. And in Exodus 5.1, because he is obeying the Lord, he marches back into Egypt where he still would have had a death warrant with his name on it. And he marches into the presence of Pharaoh. And Exodus 5.1 says, Moses and Aaron went and they said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That took some guts. And we shouldn't shortchange Moses on that fact. For a shepherd from nowhere to march into the presence of the most powerful man on earth and to look him in the eyes and to say, the Lord, the one true God, the God of the Hebrews says, you better let these people go. That's a pretty audacious thing. It's obedience and it's courage. Look at what he says in Exodus 14. This is why the people are at the Red Sea. And they're freaking out because Pharaoh's coming after them. This is one of the great lines that Moses ever speaks. The people say, isn't this what we said to you, verse 12, in Egypt? Let us alone that we may just serve the Egyptians. It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. That's a great response. A great response to people who were terrified and panicked and ready to tuck tail and run. And Moses says, all you got to do is stand here and watch. And God's going to take care of it. You can go back to the story of the Passover. He leads the people in worship. You can look at the worship in Exodus 15. You can look at his faith in Numbers 12. I'll let you look at all those later. But obedience, worship, humility, courage, and faith are the things that mark his life. Okay? How does Moses point us to Jesus? We'll wrap up with this. Moses was looking for the Messiah. And he encouraged Israel to look for a greater prophet. A greater prophet. And we'll just look at one of these verses. Deuteronomy 18.15. You can read several verses here that that continue this idea, this prophecy, this promise. But just look at Deuteronomy 18.15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers, and it is to him that you will listen. And look, the Jewish people hung on to that promise. Moses was a big deal. And when the great prophet Moses said, God's going to send another prophet, they hung on to that promise. So much so that when you open the Gospel of John and you read about this crazy guy named John the Baptist out preaching in the wilderness, the Jews go out to him and they say, who are you? Are you the Christ? No, not the Christ. Maybe you're Elijah. We talked about Elijah last week. Malachi chapter 4, this promise that he would send. Maybe you're Elijah. And he says, nope, I'm not Elijah. And then the third question they ask is, are you the prophet? Not are you a prophet, are you the prophet? That goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 18 and this hope that they had that God was going to send some great prophet to speak to them and to teach them. 
And if you look at John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says to the Jews, if you listen to Moses, you would believe in me because Moses talked about me. When Moses said that God was going to send a prophet, well, I'm the prophet. And if you would just listen to Moses, you would know because Moses talked about me. So Moses himself was looking for the Messiah. He was looking for this greater prophet to come. Second, he was a type of Christ in his role as mediator who interceded for the people. A type of Christ, sort of a picture of Christ, as he was a mediator and he interceded for the people. And this is remarkable. you got to see this in Exodus 32. Exodus 32. This is the story of the golden calf. We're going to talk about this in a week and a half on Sunday morning. Moses is on the mountain. Aaron's building idols. The people are throwing a party. And if you look at Exodus 32, let's just start in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, if you can't just forgive it, if you can't just move past it, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. My angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And you see this picture here of a man standing between the people and God saying, atonement has to be made for your sin. We can't just forget about it. And maybe if God won't just forgive your sin, maybe he'll blot me out instead of you. And when you read it, and you know all the knocks against Moses, it almost makes you chuckle. Like, well, yeah, nice suggestion. You need a mediator too. But you get the picture of someone standing in between God and sinful people as that mediator, as that go-between, as somebody who's going to make atonement for the people and for their sin. And I just want you to see how significant it was that Moses steps in the gap here. Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Moses does this several times. He intercedes for the people. He prays for the people. God talks about destroying them. And Moses says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Moses says, you've had a plan for this people. You can't go back on your plan. The Egyptians will laugh at you. You won't receive glory. Your promise won't come true to Abraham. You can't destroy these people. And he intercedes on their behalf. But look what Psalm 106 says in verse 23. It says, speaking of this very incident, the golden calf. Verse 19, they made a golden calf. Verse 20, they exchanged the glory. Verse 21, they forgot God. They forgot all his deeds. Verse 22, verse 23. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. God was going to destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. To turn away his wrath from destroying them. And that's the picture of a mediator. Somebody who stands in the breach between God who is rightly wrathful and angry at sinners. And intercedes for them 
so that God doesn't destroy them. And the book of Psalms says Moses did that for the people. And it's pointing you forward to what Jesus did. And just mark a couple of verses. We're short on time, but just mark Romans 8 and 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy says there is only one mediator between God and men, and it's the man Jesus Christ. It's not Moses, it's Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 8 that Jesus intercedes for us. He stands between the Father and us so that his anger is averted and his, his blessing and his favor rests upon us. Jesus is this mediator who intercedes, and Moses points us forward to that. Last idea is this. Moses appeared with Elijah at the transfiguration of Jesus, and he spoke of Jesus' coming departure, or you could say his coming exodus. And we won't read this because we read it last week with Elijah. I just want you to think about about one possibility and and how this worked in Moses' life. This, to me, this may be just sort of off in the weeds and may not have a whole lot of relevance, but I think about this. We read Deuteronomy 3 where Moses comes to God and he says, please let me go over. I really want to go over. God's already told him, you're not going. You're not going to go. And he says, please let me go over and see the land. All I want to do is go see it. Just want to cross over. When he prays that prayer, by the way, he's about four miles away and he can see it. Looking down off the plains of Moab, he can see the promised land. And he's saying to God, I just want to go over there and see it. After everything I've been through with these people, I just want to go over. And God says, no, you don't get to go. You have to prepare Joshua and Joshua is going to lead the people over. And so he doesn't get to go. And then... At the end of his life, God says, let's go on a hike. And he takes him up in the mountains, and he dies, and God buries him. And that's it. And he never gets to go in. You know, because you've read the rest of the story, that when he stood on that mountain in the presence of Jesus with Elijah, he put his feet in the promised land for the very first time. That's a long wait between dying at the end of Deuteronomy all the way to the Gospels where he stands with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration and he plants his feet in the promised land. And the thing that I wonder is, this is what what I'd like to ask Moses someday. When you first got to heaven, I hate to say you'd be disappointed to be in heaven. I don't think he was disappointed to be in heaven. He was disappointed not to get to go over to the promised land. And my question is, did God tell you right out of the gate when you got to heaven, did he say to you, just wait. One of these days I'm going to let you put your feet down there. When I send the Messiah, the prophet that you promised, he's going to manifest his glory to his disciples and I'm going to send you and Elijah and you're going to get to plant your feet on that land. Did he tell him that or... Did he just wait in heaven and wait and wait and wait? Whatever your experience of time is in heaven, he waited. And then one day God said, hey, Moses, come here. I want you to go down and put your feet in there. And I just wonder, did he wait? Did he know that it was coming or did, did, he, did he not know that it was coming? And I've thought about that this week. It's, it's made me think of my son. We, uh, we took a small trip a few weeks back and we went to a, a little water park in Dallas, 
uh, to Great Wolf Lodge. And for a couple of months, we talked about it, and he was excited to go. And every night, we got in this routine right before bed. We would tuck him in, and we'd do all the stuff. you go through the things. And then before you leave the room, he'd say, hey, hey, where are we going? He'd say, Great Wolf Lodge. And he'd say, how long? How many weeks? And you'd say, eight weeks, eight weeks. And that would be the last thing he'd say before he went to bed every night. Eight weeks, seven weeks, six weeks. So we did that, and we went all the way through it, and we finally went, and he didn't like Great Wolf Lodge at all. It was, he didn't like it. It was a total waste. But when we got home, we had gotten in this routine, right? So he starts to say at night, where are we going next? What's next? And so next is you get to go to Grandma's house in Amarillo. How many weeks? How many weeks? So now we're down to two or three days. Two or three days, and you get to go to Grandma's house. So we'll do, go through the routine tonight, and he'll say, where are we going? Going to Grandma's house. How long? And you just see the excitement. And you say, oh, that's neat that children do that. But adults do that too. Because it was adults that invented the little app on your phone that tells you how many days till you get to go on a cruise. And you pull it up on your phone when you're having a bad day at work and you say, ha, ah, 323 days till I get to go on a cruise. It's almost here. And there's something in us that sort of wants something out there that's tangible, that we can sort of look to and say, it's coming. And I know it's coming. And I just wonder with Moses, as he's, he's in the presence of the Lord, and I don't think there's disappointment there, but did God say to him, 2,000 years, then you'll get to go. Just hang on a couple millennia, and you're going to get to go. I don't know the answer to that. But I know that this man who desperately at the end of his life, even as he's conflicted with his sin and blaming the people and all that mess, he just looks at it and he says, I just want to go over. I want to go over to the promised land. And the moment that he got to do that was when Jesus is transfigured before his disciples and Moses shows up and Elijah shows up. And we talked about this last week. They have this conversation about his exodus. Just how fascinating is that? The man who led the people in the exodus, who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, shows up on this mountain as Jesus is revealed in all his glory, and they start talking not about the exodus from Egypt. This is not Moses saying, let me tell you about the glory days. Let me tell you about what we did way back in Egypt. But this is Moses saying, in effect, to Jesus, how long? How much longer is it until you're going to lead God's people out of slavery to sin? How much longer is it? And he's looking forward to it, and he's excited about it. And from the beginning of his life, the end of his life, all the way to the end of his life, we see things in Moses that point us forward to Jesus and help us make the connection to the true hero of the story. So that's Moses. Moses.